This episode was recorded remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic, and thus there may be periodic sound quality issues. Thanks for your understanding. This is Wise Health for Women Warriors, the podcast that brings expert providers to anyone treating female military patients and families. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Aaron Kaiser, the Program Director of the Sashek OB-GYN Residency, and today I'm speaking about female pelvic floor disorders with Captain Joy Greer from Naval Medical Center Portsmouth. Captain Greer attended Eastern Virginia Medical School, followed by residency in OBGYN at Naval Medical Center Portsmouth. She was then stationed at Naval Hospital Camp Lejeune for five years. She completed a fellowship in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. She then returned to Naval Medical Center Portsmouth as a female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgeon and is a faculty member of OBGYN residency program and an associate professor at USIS. Her research interests include the impact of pelvic floor disorders in the military beneficiary population. So Captain Greer, thank you so much for being here with me today. You're welcome. Glad to join. So I'd like to start, you know, for providers who don't do GYN regularly, you know, what are pelvic floor disorders? Because I think we talk about it all the time, but I think it encompasses a lot more than people might be thinking about. Sure. So pelvic floor disorders um, encompass a wide range of different conditions. Um, We think about urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence or bowel leakage, pelvic organ prolapse, bladder pain conditions, and then we also see other conditions like recurrent urinary tract infections or microscopic hematuria as well. And how prevalent are these issues in women? So when we talk about the most common ones, so that's like urinary incontinence, pelvic organ prolapse, fecal incontinence, those are quite common um, and they can range anywhere from about 7 to 17% for women that are in the same age range as, as our military population. The rates of these disorders are expected to increase um, as our population ages as well. So we know it's something that's going to be around for quite a while. So I feel like a lot of people think of, you know, incontinence when we think of elderly, frail women, but you're saying young, healthy military women are also going to be affected by this. Oh, yes, definitely. So for specifically for urinary incontinence, like young women in, like I said, the ranges of our active duty patients for the normal population outside the military that percentage can be up to 17%, so almost one in five. For some of the studies where we've looked at military women, that rate can almost be as high as one in three. So there is some conflicting data out there. Some studies show a much lower rate, but we do see some populations where that rate is much higher. So that's interesting because I think of our female military population as being more fit, more healthy. So why do you think the military population may have higher rates of this? Well, I think there are a couple reasons. Um, One is because the activities that military service requires for some rates or MOSs, you know, is more strenuous than what just a woman who's out working on a civilian job would require to do her job. Additionally, um, we have women that come into the military service who aren't afraid of exercise necessarily. And so they may have been vigorous athletes during their teen years as well. There are a lot of studies that suggest that women who have a lot of high stress activity as teenagers may be much higher risk for these um, conditions because their bodies are still growing and developing during the teen years and they may not be able to recover from that initial stress. Interesting. And you bring up a good point that, you know, if you're, I feel, I I imagine most military women, because we have to pass a regular physical fitness test, are going to be more active than 
maybe their civilian population sitting in a desk job. So it's possible that if all those people sit at a desk job, did the activities and exercises that military service women, they might have these symptoms too. Right. And I think for military uh, women, we don't have the option to not do the exercises, right? So if you're <laughs> yes. um, a civilian and you have a little bit of leakage when you run or you're doing burpees or something like that, you're just like, oh, well, I'm going to change my exercise regimen. Yeah. Like I might ride the bike instead. So I'm not leaking. Right. And so for some branches of the service, like the Navy, we have several different options for cardio, right? To do our physical fitness portion. We can bike, we can swim, we can run, we can do the treadmill, but other services don't have that same option. And I imagine women are not running to their PCM saying, hey, I want it written on my profile that I have to do the bike because I pee when I run. I imagine people are not super eager to have that written all over their chart. Right. And so for, I mean, for Navy, we don't have to necessarily have a waiver to pick one of the alternate or a profile to pick one of the alternate cardio events. But I know that may be the case for other branches of service. So yeah, it's something that is not um, something that many active duty women, especially because in my, in taking care of Air Force patients, um, urinary incontinence, for example, could be a disqualifier for flight status. And so it's not something that some women are going to bring up if they're really um, adamant about pursuing their military career. And, you know, I'm a generalist OBGYN, um, but I've also found that I feel like some women just think, well, it's after you have babies, that's just what happens. And they think it's like just something they have to deal with. Yeah. So that is a very common um, thought. I think just because um, incontinence specifically is so common. It's prevalent, right? And um, having vaginal delivery specifically is one of the most common risk factors for developing pelvic floor disorders, but it's not normal. <laughs> Just because it's common doesn't mean it's normal. All right. So, you know, pelvic floor disorders, you said is like some prolapse, you know, some incontinence. Does this have long-term effects or is this just something that women, you know, can deal with? So it can have long-term effects. It, I tell patients it's not like a cancer diagnosis. You know, these aren't life-threatening conditions in that respect, but we do see a higher association um, with anxiety, depression, and psychological stress. And we all know as military providers, regardless of specialty, that that's a huge impact on our active duty readiness. And so it's important to be aware of that. And there are many resources in our military system that our service women can use, but to recognize that they may not be willing to talk about the, the impact of the mental health aspect of their pelvic floor disorders, but it's a it's a huge deal for patients. I have many patients that come in and tears will be part of the history just because this has been such an impact on their life. Well, I think, you know, I think if it keeps them from exercising, oftentimes it can keep women from engaging in, you know, relationship and, you know, sexual relations with their spouse because, <laughs> you know, the embarrassment of what if they pee or they have stool incontinence. So I do think it can have a big impact because we know that, you know, maintaining sexual activity is an indicator of quality of life. Right. So yeah, that's, that's huge. And then a lot of my active duty service women too have had trouble in their operational setting um, for, for a Navy, you know, for sailors that are on ships they, a bathroom is like three ladder wells away, you know, and they can't get up to the bathroom quickly enough when they have to go or just some of the jobs like as a bosun's mate, they're hauling big ropes and things and chains and they're leaking as they do it. And um, unfortunately, the units aren't always very sympathetic. 
Yeah, and even like the urgency component of feeling like you have to go all the time. Like I remember being deployed in Afghanistan and it was like, it's a walk to get to the bathroom and to do it in the middle of the night by yourself. I mean, it was kind of scary, you know? And so like, I remember like trying to like restrict my fluids because I didn't want to have to get up in the middle of the night and pee. Right. You know, and then, and then you're trying to get off your body armor in addition to your uniform and get to the bathroom. So it can definitely be quite an issue for our active duty women. Well, and that's a great segue to like, so what, you know, what can we do about it and what should our primary care providers be saying to our, to the women or, you know, asking or where should they be sending them? Right. So I think first, the biggest um, thing that primary care providers can do is just ask the question. Um, Because number one, it, it normalizes a little bit and it lets our active duty service women know that there are things that can help them and get them back to um, an improved quality of life. So they're not having to necessarily deal with these conditions all the time. And another good thing I found with like always asking it is also if you have it on like your intake form, right? Because I think some women are might be more more willing to like check the box and you know say it. Right. No, I, I completely agree. I have had a couple of patients recently who've been referred to me because at their periodic health assessment, their provider asked, their PCM asked. And so they're like, well, it wasn't that bad, but they asked. And so I said, yes. And then, you know, that led to coming to see me so that they could get more of their questions answered. And we could talk about, you know, less invasive options to help improve their quality of life. Well, actually, I take that as a huge win because I often find the PHA as like a check the box type of event and it doesn't actually give me any health benefits. So actually, I'm very happy to hear that maybe for other people, it gives them some health benefit and they actually get some medical services that they may need. Yes. Definitely, definitely. So beyond asking, um, the next thing that can be done, um, everyone has probably heard about Kegel exercises or pelvic floor muscle exercises. And I find that um, many women may say that they're doing them or they've heard about them, but on exam, the pelvic floor muscles may be very uncoordinated or they may not be doing it right. So the best way, they're the most reliable way that I've heard, and it actually, my patients chuckle, but it actually um, seems to get them to activate the right muscles, is to pretend you're in the elevator with one other person and you feel like you're about to pass gas, and you've got to activate those muscles to prevent the gas from coming out because everyone's going to know it's you. (laughs) So that seems to be the best verbal trigger um, to actually activate um, the pelvic floor muscles correctly. And so that's interesting because I feel like if you read Cosmo or some of like, you know, the layperson stuff, they'll talk about like, while you're peeing, stop the flow of pee. And so is that not an accurate statement? So it, that can be one way to kind of identify the right muscles. However, we don't want patients to practice their Kegels while they're urinating because that can create a lot of voiding dysfunction down the road. And so you don't have to worry about disrupting a urine stream if you're thinking about things to prevent passing gas, right? And so I find that that's a little bit easier for patients to think about and to start to do that activation on their own. And then the other thing I remember learning about um, is that they're supposed to hold it. It's not just like squeeze, let go, right. but it's actually like a count to 10 seconds or 10 Mississippi. Right. So patients, um, there are two different types of muscle in the pelvic floor, just like there are when we're working with athletes on trying to improve both endurance and speed when we're running, right? So we have our fast twitch muscles and our slow twitch muscles. And so for the pelvic floor, you need to learn to strengthen and activate both 
to provide maximal benefit. And so I have patients do two different types of exercises. So the first is the one where you're holding it up to a count of 10. And most women who are just starting these exercises probably maybe only will get to a three or a four if you're actually trying to hold a contraction long. So definitely work up to 10 um, reps of those 10 second holds. And then the other one is just doing the quick flicks or the maximal contraction as quickly as you can and doing those also 10 times. And so the goal is to do each of those at least three times a day. So they can even do it while they're having their breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Practice, do their Kegel exercises at the same time. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So no one needs to know you're doing them. (laughs) I know it is one of those nice things. You can really do them anywhere because no one knows. Right. And those exercises, there's been a lot of studies looking at them and um, we see that they help prevent pelvic floor disorders from coming um, in the future. They also help treat pelvic floor disorders. Women can do them while they're pregnant to um, decrease their chances of developing a, a pelvic floor disorder after delivery. And they can begin to start them pretty soon after delivery as well. They're just going to probably notice that they don't have the same strength and control that they had and endurance that they had before delivery. Okay. So exercises is a great first line treatment or even preventative measure for a lot of our women. Yeah. Okay. Right. The only time I don't recommend doing exercises is when a patient has a lot of pelvic pain. Okay. Because sometimes that can worsen the pain and muscle spasm. And those are the patients specifically that I send first to a physical therapist. So we can make sure that we are directing the muscle strength in the right direction and not aggravating pain conditions while we're exercising to strengthen them. So you brought up the pelvic floor physical therapist, which mm-hmm. I think it is a great service, but sadly, like at I'm at BMC, which is, you know, one of the largest medicines and we have one female pelvic floor physical therapist right. in all of BMC. I mean, how many do you have at Portsmouth? We have one as well. Yeah. And so I think that's most of our patients go out of town. Yeah, I think that's a huge disservice, but it is covered by TRICARE. Correct. Okay, so if someone is really struggling, then that can also be an option. And can you talk a little bit about what pelvic floor physical therapists do just for the providers who might be saying, what is a pelvic floor physical therapist? Sure. So they um, initially, when a patient goes to see a pelvic floor physical therapist for a pelvic floor disorder, the first visit is usually primarily a counseling visit, and the physical therapist will kind of discuss, we'll get a very thorough history. Many of the pelvic floor therapists use validated questionnaires to get quality of life measures on patients as well to see kind of how the pelvic floor disorders are impacting their daily activities of living. And they'll just talk about the next steps. Usually there's a, the first physical evaluation is very thorough. And not only will they assess the pelvic floor muscles and strength, which usually does require a digital vaginal exam, but they'll also look at back, they'll look at core muscles, they'll look at hip alignment, they'll look at range of motion of the hips and the pelvic girdle stability. And so it's a very thorough assessment because the pelvic floor structures are connected to our back, it's connected to our core muscles and our abdomen, it's even connected all the way up to our diaphragm. And so their abnormalities in many different areas can impact the pelvic floor. And so they you know, will do a very thorough exam and then based on their exam findings, they'll then start a treatment plan. Most patients, um, if it's just for stress incontinence, they'll have them do some exercises for muscle strengthening, sometimes biofeedback, which is where there's like a small tampon that's connected to a computer that's inserted in the vagina. 
And then the patient will see, for example, maybe a picture of a rose or a flower on the screen, and the patient will have to work to contract her muscles. And as she contracts her muscles, the flower will close or vice versa if they're trying to get her to relax. Yeah. And we don't need to go into like super detail, but I do think it's like, I usually tell patients, I'm like, they're a physical therapist. And they have all these fancy machines where they can like check muscle strength and all the different pelvic muscles. And, and they're like physical therapists, but their focus is the pelvic floor muscles. Right. Nope. That's very true. And then, and then my neighbor, who's a Navy physical therapist over at Fort Sam, he's like, I'm just shocked that with so many physical therapists in the military, that they don't have more of an emphasis on this because so many women suffer from this. And I think it's, you know, Right. The emphasis, I guess, is not on women's health. Well, not yet. But I, I think there are cases where they are trying to, you know, to do business case analysis to, you know, try and see if it's worthwhile based on the market to get more active duty physical therapists. But I do think it's great that it is covered by TRICARE so you can find a physical, a public floor physical therapist in your area and and send them there. Right. Some patients, um, active duty, it's free. There's no copay. But just if you're um, having to see a dependent, some places the dependents will need to pay a copay for it. So it's just something to let them know. So we've talked about some exercises we can do at home, the Kegel exercises. We've talked about pelvic floor physical therapy. Mm-hmm. So I guess if that's not working or what's, what's kind of the next steps, I guess, for treatment? So the next step, um, if we're speaking specifically about stress incontinence, one option that another at-home option that patients can do is there's an a incontinence tampon now that is made by Poise. It's called Poise Impressa. I've had my patients look in the Tidewater area. Not very many stores actually stock them where patients can go pick them up, but you can definitely order them online. But it's like a tampon, but it doesn't have all the absorption that a menstrual tampon would. And so patients can find which size fits them. They come in small, medium, and large. And it basically just goes in like a tampon. The patient can wear it for 8 to 12 hours. And it provides that extra support to the bladder and the urethra so they don't have leaking with coughing, sneezing, and laughing. So is that like an at-home pessary, essentially? It is, but it's just a tampon. So a lot of patients are very comfortable with the tampon idea. And so um, it's a easy transition for patients. Nice. That's a, that's a very easy thing. And then we have pessaries, like you mentioned. Um, These are silicone devices. They're flexible. They come in rings and all these other different shapes and sizes, but we basically fit them to a woman's vagina. So they work to support the bladder and the urethra to prevent leakage. They can also be used in patients who have prolapse or vaginal bulge symptoms so that they can get back to living their life. Um, I've even had fighter pilots who've flown with the pessary. So, And then I, I'm familiar with the pessary and I know it's like you can leave it as long as you want, but you can take it out, wash it, take it out for intercourse, put it back in. The tampons you were talking about, right. those are one-time use? They are one-time use. So it's, they're not reusable. So it's about, I think the cost works out at our last check was about a dollar a tampon but it can stay in the whole day. So because there's not like an accumulation of blood or anything like a menstrual tampon, you can, a patient can leave it in longer. So it's works great if she's, you know, going to be at work all day, or she's going to an amusement park with friends for a day and just doesn't want to have to deal with pads or anything like that. It's something that can be really helpful. Oh, that's a great option. You know, I do have some patients, you know, not everyone's excited about a pessary, but I do think for patients, if they say like, you know, most of the day I can go through the day, I don't leak when I laugh or cough, but it's really just when I exercise. I think those are great patients to consider the pessary or even the tampon because it's not a big deal to just wear like for the hour you go to the gym. Right. Nope. That's definitely, I definitely agree with that. (laughs) You know, one of my coworkers, she does a lot of CrossFit and she was saying that at the 
CrossFit competition, I guess it's a thing where if you don't pee during your competition, then you did not put enough effort into it. And I'm like, why is this okay? Like, can, we, can you just bring a bunch of pesticides <laughs> with you, hand them out to everyone? I know. Yeah, I know. I know. I think there is a classic picture of an Olympic weightlifter, female weightlifter, who just has urine running down her leg as she's lifting for the gold medal. Which as a urogynecologist, you're like, what? This is not okay. I know. I know. But it is true. Like we'll have patients that come in and I've even had one who um, had really bad leakage and we ended up doing a, a surgical treatment for her and she was great with running. She could now run, you know, 10 miles and do those things, but she still had a little bit of leakage when she did some of the heavy lifting with CrossFit. And so it's, you know, just becomes a discussion with the patient about goals of treatment so that we can try and, you know, get the, the appropriate treatment options for patients. All right. So, and you're a surgeon. And so I guess are the next options we're moving to is surgical options? Right. For, yes, for stress incontinence and for prolapse. Then if a pessary or the tampon isn't working for patients, then um, surgery are the next steps. Um, and we have many different surgical approaches. We do repairs using patient's own tissue. Sometimes we will add a small piece of mesh to help the repair last longer but it requires individual patient assessment and evaluation and discussion of their goals. And I guess to see a, a pelvic floor specialist or pelvic floor reconstruction specialist, they're mostly at the medical centers, I'm guessing. Correct. Correct. Okay. So you need referral to those places. Mm -hmm. That's, that's very true. And if um, patient or if, you know, physicians are in a smaller market and they don't have that, it's becoming a much more common specialty and so there's usually the ability to find a urogynecologist in the local area, at least here in the States. And so the next thing I want to talk about is active duty service members returning to work, including their rigorous exercise routines after having babies. Okay. So when is it safe for our female service members to start exercising again? And we can break it into vaginal delivery versus C-section. Right. So I think it depends on number one, what their fitness levels were before delivery and during pregnancy. I think that has a big key on it. And it also depends on what type of delivery they had and sort of what their pre-existing pelvic floor status was. So there've been a couple studies that looked at first time moms and getting back to work. And so they can get start exercising four to six weeks after delivery without causing significant worsening of pelvic floor disorders, and it may improve their pelvic floor disorders as well down the road. A couple things that women should just be aware about, similar to when you're rehabbing a, a knee or an ankle injury and you're starting to exercise, you really need to think about exercise after deliveries as kind of the same way. So you don't want to just jump back into the same exercise regimen that you were doing immediately before you got pregnant or even um, right up until delivery because the pelvic floor is injured and can after a delivery and pregnancy and can take six to 12 months to recover. So I always encourage patients to start with doing planks and core strengthening exercises and, and walking. And then as they start to feel more conditioned and more toned, then they can start to add back their higher impact activity. So is there harm to doing a lot of like CrossFit type stuff too soon after delivery? We don't have tons of data on that, but in my professional opinion, I think there is, and I think it can put you at higher risk for pelvic floor disorders down the road or at least during the rehab process. Gotcha. So starting with like your 
So like you were saying, starting with doing like some more planks, more like abdominal core before you jump into anything that's really stressing the pelvic floor, like squats and deadlifts and stuff like that. Correct. So are you, I know you're Navy, mm-hmm. but I'm sure if there's Army providers out there listening or people who are taking care of Army service women. Um, right. Have you seen the new Army combat fitness test? I have. Okay. So think CrossFit, right? Yes. Um so unlike the Navy and the Air Force, the Army has not gone to pushing the – currently as it stands, women are expected to do the ACFT six months postpartum, which I think is a big stress because obviously if you're going to pass it in six months, you got to start training, you know, probably right when you come back from maternity leave. Right. So any tips, tricks, thoughts that you want to give to our service women or people taking care of our service women? So a couple recommendations in studies that we've looked at it and even in fitness after delivery, the best way that you can maximize your fitness and minimize your pelvic floor disorders is to stay within a healthy weight, number one. And so really during um, pregnancy to avoid excess weight gain as much as possible is something I think that can really help. And then as you get back into your routines, I would really work on doing your core stuff strength. So like working on your push-ups. And um, some of those areas before you start working on your weights, um, especially doing your maximal reps. Okay. So like avoid doing like the deadlifts right away. Right. <laughs> like where you can get your, get your pushups working, then you can get your cardio going and then you can, you know, start working on um, the deadlifts and the throws and things like that as you get more core strength. So really working the core, meaning like the abdomen, the low back, the the hip muscles before you dive into too much really heavy weights. Yes, that would be my recommendation. It'll be, I obviously, I don't see that many active duty army. I may see some, but not a lot. So I think it would be really interesting as these tests continue to roll out and more women are taking them just for provide army providers specifically to start asking about pelvic floor symptoms, as well as, you know, how are they doing on the test? And for us as women, you're going back to active duty after delivery, you know, how are they doing on this new test within six months? Yeah. And, you know, as women's health providers, we are, you know, encouraging and trying to provide the data to, um, you know, big army that we recommend 12 months, but I would encourage, you know, everyone to utilize our pelvic floor physical therapists. And if you have army women coming back, trying to train for the ACFT postpartum, consider sending them to a pelvic floor physical therapist. Right. And you don't even have to wait. I don't know about everybody's system, but in our system, because we only have one, you know, pelvic floor physical therapist at Portsmouth, most of our patients go out in town and it takes two, one to two months for patients usually to get their first appointment just because it's so busy. So I would, if you know, this is an active duty army, you know, soldier, I would go ahead and put that consult in (laughs) for them to get the PT like shortly after they deliver. So that by the time they're able to get that first appointment, they're at that four to six week mark after delivery and can get started. Yeah, well, that's a great tip. We were, we've been starting to do that too, trying when we send women home with their con leave and profile to say, also put in that public floor physical therapy consult. Well, I think this has been great information. I learned about the tampon that, and the link for that um, we can put in the show notes if people want to look into it. Any other um, advice or tips that you want to share? Um, I also in the show notes, I'll put a link to the American Urogynecologic Society's webpage. They have a lot of great patient information that you don't have to be a member of the society to access. 
And so if you're just trying to give a patient an overview without going into a lot of details, it's a really, you know, you can download the PDFs and print them out. So all um, that'll be in the show notes as well. But the biggest thing is just to ask patients and to let them know that we have lots of options to help them get their quality of life and also fulfill their requirements of active service. Well, you heard it from the expert. I mean, I'm really shocked by the prevalence of, you know, one in 15 female service members. You know, I think it is really important for all of our first line primary care providers to be asking about it, as well as hopefully just educating about, you know, doing the Kegel exercises and, you know, referring to public floor PT if we need it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about us and the great work WIC is doing, go to the WIC SharePoint. The link and email address is in the show notes. Until next time, be well. 